0: Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg, in partnership with justiceinfo.net. Hi Janet.
1: Hi Steph. We're talking today about the Linden case. It's been billed as the trial of the century by some, and it's certainly a rarity. Sweden is putting two oil executives on charge on the beginning of September for aiding and abetting war crimes in Sudan. The two men were the chair of the board of its directors and the former
2: CEO, who had been the head of operations for the company in Sudan. And of course, we should say that the two men denied the charges. Um, We did a podcast a couple of years ago when the indictments came out. At that point, we spoke to Egbert Veselink of the NGO Pax. Yeah, he'd been lobbying on behalf of the victims' communities, but later put
1: together a very detailed analysis of what had happened and how London executives could possibly be prosecuted under Swedish law. And we'll put a link to his report on our website.
3: The original report was a traditional NGO report. We wanted to uh, create some outrage uh, about about what the company had done and that they got away with it. We wanted primarily a political process, and to to convince shareholders that they should uh, uh, request other reaction from the company. Now, if the company would have gone to South Sudan um, after the peace agreement and and tell the population, um, well, sorry, what happened? What can I do for you? They would be welcomed. There, There would be no problem if it would just have the guts to act as human beings. They would be friends of the population now but no the acted as a legal entity aggressively um, and uh, and confrontational and consequently we were forced to to write a report that was legally much more sound and thought through than we initially had done and it became impossible by the public prosecutor to ignore the report could it indeed it, it reads like a uh, an indictment
2: so uh, that was Egbert uh, explaining why they did the report. Why don't you a or stuff as to what exactly this case is all about?
1: Well, in detail, and thank you for writing this down for me, it's about how between 1997 and 2003, an oil consortium, including the Swedish oil firm London, tried to secure an area in Sudan, now South Sudan after independence, uh, known as Block 5 for oil exploration. To get control of this area, they paid government forces and associated militias who then allegedly committed war crimes. Thousands of people died in what they now call the so-called oil wars, and 200,000 people were displaced by the violence.
3: Technically, it is, the indictment is for aiding and abetting um, violations of international public law, atrocity crimes. Atrocity crimes includes a lot of crimes and uh, there's no sheet of suspicion with the indictment but they're undoubtedly, the way it's all described, they are essentially war crimes and crimes against humanity and more specifically deliberately targeting civilians, destroying essential things that that civilians need for survival, enslavement, pillage, killing, murder all at a massive, systematic scale, repeatedly.
2: So, now we're actually about to start the trial, and um, I wrote down a few of the amazing things that signifies why this is so important. One of the most extraordinary aspects of this is that it's planned to take 220 scheduled court days, which will stretch as far as the eye can see, making it very much the longest trial in Swedish history. And it's already taken 10 years of investigation and then two
1: years of back and forth in Swedish courts with London's big battery of lawyers trying very hard to get the case thrown
2: out. There's also attached to it uh, what's called a kind of civil case, as far as I understand, but a case that's about potential reparations. If there is a guilty verdict, what victims might be able to expect. And it's extremely rare to
1: see business people uh, running multinational companies be put on trial for alleged war crimes like this. So PAX is pulling out the Nuremberg card and how rare it is uh, as the last time that business executives like this
2: were found complicit in war crimes. We'll get back to the Nuremberg comparison a bit later, but against the backdrop of all this extraordinary stuff that's concerned here, I decided to call up Mark Klamberg, who's a professor at Stockholm University, and I talked through with him a few of the things that our listeners might find interesting. What are the kind of things that you talked about? Well, for example, there's this strong Swedish link. I mean, it's a Swedish company, even if both of the people who are on trial aren't both uh, Swedish. And in Sweden, the courts have already made a decision that's in universal jurisdiction cases, you don't actually have to have that strong Swedish link. But in this case, it's there.
1: What are some of the other things that uh, that you want to highlight from the conversation?
2: Well, we also went into some of the technicalities of the charges and he told me that there's quite a lot of flexibility in the way that Swedish law actually can run the procedure in a court. And They do use the adversarial system, you know, we've got a prosecution and defence, but the procedural stuff can be a little bit more mixed, a bit more like the continental law system. But one thing that's very clear is that the standard of proof is beyond reasonable doubt. But one big issue that he really wanted to point it up to me, uh, he says it's already come up in the pre-trial sort of discussions between prosecution and defence, and he expects it to come up again, will be regarding intent. And the issue is whether the court would apply the International Criminal Court, the ad hoc tribunal's version of intent, or whether they apply Swedish rules. And here's Mark.
4: This is important because if one looks at the ICC, for example, they have rejected that the prosecution, when they try to use a recklessness or dolus eventalis as a standard for intent, the prosecution has to prove direct intent or indirect intent, which is a higher standard, more difficult for the prosecution. In Swedish law, you can be convicted for recklessness. So the prosecution, they're relying on recklessness, which is kind of the lowest standard for proving intent. So they want to use the Swedish rules, the prosecution, while as a defence they're saying we should use the same standards at the ICC. And that could kind of uh, be important or even determine the outcome of the case, uh, which standard you you apply. So that is something that has been under discussion. uh, between the defence and the prosecution, and uh, we'll see if that will become a, an issue during the trial. Uh, for me, I, I think the answer is quite easy, straightforward. I, I have my mind set on which rules one should apply.
2: So what do you think, Steph? Uh, which uh, one of those do you think Mark thinks the course is going to go for, the ICC or the Swedish version?
1: Well, I think the only measure I have for this is possible the way the Dutch courts deal with war crimes cases. And there I find that the judges like to also rely on the Dutch system if they can. And so in, in a situation where this would be in the Netherlands, I would think that they possibly would go for the reckless, for the Swedish standard, which is probably what the prosecution is going to push for, because that is the easier conviction. So my experience with Dutch courts is that they like to keep to what they know.
2: Yeah. Mark says that in the discussions that they've already had in the courtroom, what they referred back to was the kind of the statute of laws on which everything is based, including on which this uh, whole case is based. And when that was going through Parliament, if you look at the documentation behind that, It says that in the case of not sure what we should do, they should always go back to Swedish rules on modes of liability and on intent. And I also asked Mark uh, why this case has been taken so long, why it's had to drag on for, for so many years.
4: There's several explanations. One thing is kind of the crime and the case as such is complicated. It's also difficult to investigate crimes which are committed in another jurisdiction where the other jurisdiction, Sudan in this case, the country is not cooperating. So that's one factor. Another factor is that the the defense, they've challenged everything they can in this case. And that's their right. They're, They're challenging everything. And it takes time to kind of deal with all of these things. Some of the things that they challenge I, I think, was kind of relevant for them to do. But it's also lesser phase. There's also been allegations of witness tampering. So that's also something that kind of drains the resources of, of the prosecution. So there's uh, multiple explanations.
2: So apart from the numbers of witnesses and, of course, the distance from the crime scene, one of the reasons why it all go on so long, Mark also said, is because of the way that documentary evidence gets presented in a Swedish court. You can't just throw in pieces of paper to the court and ask them to look at it. You actually have to present each individual bit of documentary evidence, and there's a lot of it.
4: You cannot just hand in a document. You have to kind of go through the document and the facts that you are kind of take out of the documents. You have to present that before the court. So you cannot just throw in the document and say, read it to the court. The prosecution has to, during the trial, point at which parts which are relevant and invoke that as evidence.
2: And finally, from Mark, I couldn't stop myself from asking him how he felt as a kind of big professor of public international law and looking at all of these different issues. And now he's got this case in his own backyard.
4: As a scholar, you welcome this because many of the issues that you've kind of thought about and some issues that you've never thought about, they will be tried in court. So that, as a scholar, that's uh, something that you welcome. In addition, uh, I truly believe that the bulk of uh, these war crimes cases, they have to be handled in the domestic courts. So in that sense, I also think uh, it's good that we have these type of cases in the, in domestic courts.
1: We also chatted to Tara Van Ho, who teaches at Essex Law School and specializes in business and human rights. And we wondered also in her academic community if the London case is seen as a big thing.
0: Yeah, it is significant. I think when you're a business and human rights scholar and you've lived through some of these cases in the past, uh, you get excited in sort of the theory and then you also brace yourself for the reality, which is uh, very few of these cases reach trial even fewer of them end up in good results for victims. So I'm excited. If you can be excited about atrocities, I'm excited about this case going forward and I'm hopeful for a positive result because of how long it's taken to get to trial. It's really impressive to me that the Swedish prosecutors have stuck with this case for as long as they have. And These kinds of cases are, of course, extraordinarily difficult. You're not just looking at did the war crimes occur, but what was the relationship to the corporation? How much of it was being led by the CEO? How much did they understand of what was going on on the ground and how much could be expected of them to act in stopping what was going on on the ground? So when you think about how complex this case is to prove the fact that it's going forward at all is is really quite significant. And I'm hopeful that in the long run, it does produce positive results for the victims on the ground in Sudan.
2: We're hearing this Nuremberg comparison stuff from some of the NGOs who've been been lobbying on this. How far does that comparison stand up?
0: Pretty far. When I, when I say that I'm excited for this case, it's because we've been waiting for so long for a case like this to go forward. Corporate complicity in war crimes is not as unusual as we would like it to be. Corporate complicity by large, major multinational corporations, not as unusual as we would like it to be. Getting the prosecutions to go forward is very unusual. So the comparator that everyone's drawing back to is IG Farben and the Nuremberg trials, where you had 23 managers and directors indicted on five different charges. 13 of them were convicted. Those 13 were convicted of either plundering and spoilation of occupied territories or war crimes and crimes against humanity by using the slave trade. Unfortunately, they all served very, very short sentences. But since then, we haven't seen sort of managers and directors held accountable for the actions of their major corporations. We've seen the corporations sometimes face fines. So you have a few prosecutions in the United States. Chiquita in 2007 paid $25 million for financing paramilitaries in Colombia. HSBC paid $1.9 billion to the United States government for money laundering. Lafarge, most recently, last year, paid $778 million for financing ISIS during the worst atrocities in Syria. But those are really the extent to which we've gotten since Nuremberg in terms of prosecuting major multinational corporations. And part of that goes to the difficulty of proving that an individual within the corporation really understood both had the mental element, the mens rea, to show that they had knowledge and intention to commit crimes and also did something in carrying out that crime. So when you have a complex multinational corporation, it's very unusual to get one person who has both the actus reus and the mens reus behind them. So what we've seen in in the intervening years between Nuremberg and now is that the prosecutions tend to focus on sort of business leaders who are the single proprietor of their corporation. So we had two, and I'm I'm about to massively mispronounce some Dutch names here, but so we've had two prosecutions, um, Franz van Anrat, who supplied mustard gas components to Saddam Hussein, and Goose uh, Kuenhoven, who provided logistical support and fighters, including arms to Charles Taylor during the civil wars in Sierra Leone and and Liberia. But those are really intervening comparators to this where you've had individual business leaders who are being prosecuted for their complicity in war crimes, and they were both the single proprietors, owners of their corporations. So it's not really the same thing as what you're seeing with London, where you're seeing major multinational oil company and their leaders are being held accountable for what the corporation did beyond what the corporation did, but what they as individuals within the corporation did. And so it is a very unusual set of uh, of circumstances. It's a very unusual prosecution, Um, but I do hope that it sets a foundation for others to follow in the footsteps going forward.
1: Yeah, I have to say, as someone who followed the Van Anraat and Kauenhofer cases, I was quite surprised that there was immediately this kind of, we haven't seen this to Nuremberg harking back when I was like, well, actually, I know two cases just in the Netherlands, but maybe that makes the Netherlands the outlier where we had those two cases. Because then I thought, well, you know, I don't follow Danish law super closely, so maybe there's stuff there. And also when I talked to our correspondent of the Nordic countries, he kind of downplayed the multinational element of London. Because they said they sold part of it off and it doesn't belong to the Swedish state anymore. But at the time these crimes were committed, it was all those things, right? So that is the thing that they're looking at.
0: Yeah, so I hope that we can talk a little bit about the sale of the assets as well, because it's one of those situations that is shady and gross and is all the worst things about corporate human rights cases that you have. But yeah, when these crimes committed, it was a multinational corporation operating out of Sweden with state support. It is an unusual set of circumstances. And it's one of those sets of circumstances that states have traditionally shied away from because of how complex it is. So I have to disagree. Like I I think it's a really quite significant case because we don't see these happen. Um, Yes, we did have Van Unrundt and Coenhoven. Those were unusual. To think about the fact that getting transnational prosecutions for complicity in war crimes by the home government of the business, they're extremely rare. And then to get one that's this complex in terms of the structure of the organization, in terms of how the orders were given and carried out, presumably, on the ground, uh, allegedly. It is an unusual case and an exciting one for me.
1: We'll move back on what you think is uh, strange about the sale of assets, but also for our listeners. Both Van Anraad and uh, kouwenhoven were two Dutch businessmen who basically kind of had a, ran a one-man business. Van Anraad had a business selling chemicals, allegedly, for the textile industry and sold just barrels of chemicals to Saddam Hussein, who then used them in in chemical gas attacks on the Kurds in Halabja in the 1980s and early 1990s. And Gus Cowenhove, or Mr. Gus, as he's called, ran a timber operation out of Sierra Leone, I think, or Liberia, and where he basically traded weapons for timber, blood timber, as we would like to have the lurid headlines. But these are really just kind of one-man kind of those kind of hustler businessman type. So how is London different? What kind of corporation was it when it committed those crimes? And why are they now fielding this whole, well, we sold all those assets and and London is really not associated to that anymore?
0: So London was an oil company. It was a medium-sized player in the oil industry, right? It's not your shell or your Chevron, but it's also not your mom and pop who found oil in the backyard. And they did have a presence in Sudan, and allegedly they asked the Sudanese government to secure an oil field for them, to have the power to ask the Sudanese government to secure an oil field for you, in and of itself suggests that you're quite a powerful player within that region. I mean, so it is a medium-sized player. It's a sizable chunk of the industry um, and a sizable chunk of the operations in Sudan. Um, which itself was a place where oil exploration was at the heart of a lot of the conflict and a lot of the war crimes. To secure those fields for Lundin, Lundin, as a corporation, I'm not going to address the individuals because they're still entitled to a fair trial. But as a corporation, if you do your human rights due diligence in a situation like that, you have to have a reasonable expectation that if you ask the Sudanese government to secure an oil field for you, it's going to result in bloodshed. Now, whether or not they did the due diligence, whether or not the corporation understood the risks that it was taking, whether or not these two individuals understood the risks that it was taking, I can't speak to that. But I can say that if they had done their human rights due diligence, they would have known that this was a problem. And so in that sense, it's a much bigger case around the structural failures of a multinational corporation to take human rights seriously. And then... It goes to the heart of what did these two individuals know and how did they act within that structure of hundreds to thousands of employees and multinational operations, that those kinds of issues weren't raised by Van Anerat or Kubenhoven. What we
1: see now is also a clearing of, um, how do you say that, in Dutch you say that you clear your own street where these people are saying they are no longer London executives and the business was sold anyway. And so you cannot tie the corporation to this case anymore. Can you explain a bit what happened with the sale of these assets and how this is tied to that case, do you think?
0: Yeah. So as somebody who has a lot of personal regrets in life, I wish the totality of what I had to do was sell off an aspect of my identity and then I could clear my own street. London sold the vast majority of its assets to a Norwegian company called Acker. They've retained enough to pay criminal fines levied by them by the Swedish prosecutor. They have not retained enough to also pay victims reparations. So there's a very small pot of money and they have sold it to Acker. Acker is now currently defending a claim by NGOs, before the Norwegian OECD National Contact Point, that's an ombudsman-like entity that enforces the OECD guidelines on multinational corporations, which says that businesses are supposed to do human rights due diligence. And the allegations against Ocker is they actually didn't consult with the stakeholders before they made the purchase. They didn't do the human rights due diligence that they should have done, and that. By purchasing all of Lundin in the way that they have and leaving just that small amount to pay the fees, they're actually depriving the victims in Sudan of a right to reparation. Here, I have to say, completely agree with the victims on that. The fact that Lundin has been allowed to sell off its assets, the fact that ACR has purchased those assets, is denying the victims a right to reparation. And that's because of this legal trick that corporations are allowed that the rest of us are not, which is... If you have a distinct corporate personality on paper you can deny responsibility for what a different part of your corporate personality or your corporate family has done. So by selling the assets from Lundin to Acker, they've created distance between the perpetrators of the alleged war crimes or alleged complicity in war crimes and those who now own the assets. In doing so they are perpetuating a new human rights violation but also, it's just so shady, right? Everybody involved in this sale and purchase knows exactly what they're trying to do, which is to deny Sudanese victims a right to reparation. And to suggest that somehow cleans the sheet, that somehow that new complicity in a human rights violation absolves them of complicity in old violations that occurred when it was very clearly loomed in, I just find it so... I have no other word for it than it's just absolutely gross. It's immoral. It's unethical. It's gross. I feel bad for the victims, but I also feel bad for the perpetrators. Like, I don't know how you wake up the next morning after a sale or a purchase like that and look yourself in the face. It's really distressing to watch and it's distressing to watch it work on people, right? So that you're hearing from people say, oh, but it's no longer Lunden. It is Lunden. Like it it doesn't matter if it's Two years or five years or 20 years from when the crime occurred, these kinds of crimes stick and they stick for a reason. They're not supposed to have statutes of limitations, they're not supposed to be things that you can be easily absolved from. And the fact that people are playing into that, it makes me really sad.
2: I'm wondering what kind of lessons medium size multinationals the world over will be drawing from this case. What you would kind of hope, I would assume, is that they'd actually do their human rights due diligence, or maybe are they learning that if you've got enough money to pay all the right lawyers and to get all the right opinions that you can kind of put justice off back and back and back? I suppose I'm really showing whose side I'm on in this by asking the question that way, but that's the way it feels. It feels very David and Goliath.
0: It does. And that's, I think, what's disappointing about the holistic part of this case. The prosecutors have done a job that virtually when this started, I had no belief that this was ever going to go to trial. I had no hope. I've stopped. I'm now jaded enough that I no longer have hope when these cases come up. I have determination. I have willingness to act in solidarity, but hope is too much. But it happened, right? It's going forward. You hope then that the lesson is don't do this in the future. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, stop being complicit in these kinds of crimes. The oil industry, the extractives are amongst the worst when it comes to these things. They're not alone. It happens with agricultural, it happens with textiles, and it happens, of course, with the arms sales as well, where you have complicity in these widespread systematic abuses of human rights complicity with war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide. You don't have to be complicit in these things. If you are a corporation, you don't have to be complicit to compete on the open market and to compete with others. And yet repeatedly you see companies of all sizes get complicit and get their hands dirty because it's easier to protect the profits than it is to abide by their human rights responsibilities. And every time these prosecutions come up, I hope the lesson is being learned to do your human rights due diligence. But when you see a company like Lundin fight as dirty as they have fought, because I consider that that sale of assets to be really dirty fighting. When you see them play the victim in the news media, when you see them try to make the argument that enough time has passed that we should just let these kinds of prosecutions drop, I worry what that message is saying to others. And I worry particularly because it's coming in the guise of sort of the good guys of human rights. When we look at our angels in the human rights movement, we often look to the Scandinavian countries. And yet it was a Swedish company that did this and they sold their assets in this shady deal to a Norwegian company. And all of that gives me concern that what companies are going to take from this is legal maneuvers work. You know, you get in trouble, create a new corporate subsidiary or create a new entity, sell off your shares to your BFF in the industry, and you can absolve yourself of a crime. And that's not the lesson that we need. And it's not the lesson that they should take.
2: So thank you so much to Tara and to Mark for uh, helping us out with this podcast. Out of all of this, Steph, what do you think that you're going to be interested in looking at when we come back to London, maybe in, in a year or two, it will probably be? I think I'm going to be very
1: interested in how they connect the company to the people. How do they tease out the link between the men who allegedly aided and abetted these crimes and the company they worked for, which also might have repercussions on uh, reparations and damages people can demand? Can they only demand damages from these men, or could there also be some kind of way to have the company be responsible in, in a civil suit separately?
2: Yeah, I think that's the area I'm most interested in. I, I'm getting the sense that with so many of these cases, at the end of the day, what really matters is reparations and what exactly those who have been through any of these alleged war crimes, or when it comes to other cases, crimes against humanity or genocide, what is it that those uh, survivor communities can expect out of it? So um, I'm really interested to see what gets uh, decided there. But Anyway, I'm sure we'll come back to it in the future.
1: I think we have about three years for the trial to continue on to actually have an opinion about it and keep following it. It's interesting that Mark mentioned that it's because of the documents, because it is a weird mix of I guess international and, and Swedish procedure or Dutch procedure, you can put all these documents in separately that go to an investigative judge. But the Swedish procedure seems to have the judges themselves being the investigative judge in a way that's slightly similar to the American system and slightly similar to the Dutch or continental system that we see. So, so it's going to be interesting to, to follow this case. And we probably have to learn a whole new, the, the quirks of Swedish jurisdiction
2: uh, while we're at it. That's true. I promise not to learn Swedish at the, at the same time. Anyway, we'll, um, <laughs> we'll speak again soon, I'm sure, and uh, see you uh, next week, um, of course, in three years' time. Of course. Thank you. This was Asymmetrical haircut. your international
0: justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net an independent site covering justice effort for mass violence. Music is by and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com This show is available on every major podcast service so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.